the default assumption for those of us at academic medical centers is we could never possibly do what they can do at the likes of Google and Amazon. And to some extent, you know, in terms of scale, that's probably true. But there's some unique perspective that you get when you're embedded with the people who are living the clinical journey day to day, when you can actually build a model and embed it into a practice. I I was wondering, you know, if it's not going to be Google and Amazon, who is it going to be? This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. A cunning linguist, that's right, Lisa, who (laughs) nearly took a job after college with a Russian oligarch. Calm down, Lisa. (laughs) Ari Caroline's journey has taken him from language to economics to business to the chief analytics officer at Sloan Kettering, striving to use data to improve the care of patients with cancer. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywer. And I'm Lisa Sunan. And today's show is sponsored by DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. So, Lisa. Yes, David. So, it looks like as a consequence of the recent election, Congress is going to look just a little bit different, as a recent New Yorker cover fairly dramatically expressed. How do you see this playing out for uh, health care next year? Well, it'll be interesting because clearly now there'll be, I think, even more debate uh, and healthy debate, probably healthier debate about what to do about uh, the ACA. I think there'll be more voices, more diverse voices in the discussion. Um, And I think that's a good thing. I mean, we really need to get to something stable. And I think the lack of stability around what's going to happen with pre-existing conditions, with insurance coverage and the like is really destructive, frankly, um, for the healthcare system. I mean, and it sounds like that was a really key issue. Yeah, for, I mean, clearly. a lot of people either didn't run or lost because that was they, they were on one side of right. that issue. And then right. that was really a bit very big campaign and issue. And sure, I mean, surely the people who have strong opinions that are in, in Congress will not change their opinion much. But, but at least this will require a sense of um, collaboration to get any change through. And I think that's probably a plus. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. We are pleased to welcome onto the program today, Ari Caroline, who is the Chief Analytics Officer at Sloan Kettering. His journey to this place has been remarkable and anything but inevitable. Welcome to the show, Ari. Hey, thanks for having me. This is where you say, hey, it's great to be here. (laughs) Hey, it's great to be here. (laughs) Terrific. (laughs) So let's jump right into what you do now. um, You have what sounds like one of the coolest jobs, analytics, at one of the most important hospital, cancer hospital and research institutions in the world. We'll talk later about how you got here, but let's start by understanding a bit about what you do now. Can you tell us about your current job? Sure. Uh, But unfortunately, analytics, I I think, is not sufficiently descriptive anymore. Okay. Um, My my role has evolved over time. And... um, you know, I've maybe fit closer to the description. I, I forget which one of your guests from uh, from Walmart is uh, described himself as an entrepreneur. Marcus Osborne, yeah, right, Marcus Marcus Osborne, um, and a large part of you know, based on my background and what I ended up doing, focused on developing analytics teams um, and and development teams, machine learning teams with a, a, a strong machine learning team within Sloan Kettering, but. Um, I think, you know, I've I've not had uh, the patience to sit with any single focus for more than about a year. And sometimes that's infuriating to the to the people that I hire. And, well, but, I just but, think that you're insatiably I, I think, curious. 
so so I know like one of the projects, for example, that, that one of your first learnings you described were learning about the limitations of data. Where you're trying to figure out how there was a regimen that was, and you couldn't figure out why people were using it, even though they were getting such bad outcomes. And could you talk about your study of that and what you learned from that experience? Sure. This was one of our early experiments after, you know, coming from a uh, an economics background and, you know, starting a team that was mostly operational analytics initially. It was our first foray into, you know, the value of what we could do on the clinical side. Um, and so we did this experiment looking at a disease, non-small cell lung cancer, where there was a lot of diversity in the treatment of, um, you know, the different regimens that patients were getting to see whether we could identify, um, you know, any significant patterns in terms of whether one regimen was better than another, considering longitudinal cost as well. Um, and we saw some interesting patterns there, but one of the things that we saw was uh, the limitations of our data. Um, so there was this one regimen, Megase, um, which, you know, where all the patients on this regimen seemed to be doing really poorly um, and, you know, and had very high costs associated with their care as well. Um, and we couldn't understand why they were possibly getting this in this drug. Um, and it turns out that, you know, the only people who were getting it were people with very low performance status, um, and therefore, you know, they were likely to be end-of-life patients, and that explains the higher costs and explains why they weren't surviving, mm. uh, for, uh, weren't surviving for as long. Um, and it really opened our eyes to the limitations of what we had available to us in the structured data, um, and that and the fact that some, we didn't have something like performance status um, had us questioning about how we can start to capture all this information. Huh. So um, I know that you're also sort of very interested. I mean, this sort of speaks to the, the difference between some of the data that are sort of rotely captured and then what, how, things that sort of really describe people's experiences. And you also sort of are, are dealing with some of these issues in a way at, at a broader level where there's sort of the data, but then there's sort of the real-life politics. There's a fascinating example from um, – uh, I, I had a chance to, to read the introduction of an upcoming book you have um, uh, where in an introduction that you wrote with your distinguished colleague, uh, Peter Bach – um, you were trying to figure out, you described the process of trying to figure out why a lot of payers weren't covering Sloan Kettering. Can you go through what that learning uh, process was? Uh, that was really interesting. And, you know, not, not everybody has the benefit of actually using what they've learned in graduate school um, on the job. And particularly, you know, considering that I had studied financial economics. Yeah, I haven't dissected very many tetrads. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and and, and I had studied financial economics and then ended up working at a cancer center, um, which, you know, I, I think maybe was better reflective of my passions in life. But the fact is, as I came in and one of the first projects uh, that I end up working on is one that really utilized a lot of, you know, the economics understanding that I was able to bring to the table. So I had, I had done an earlier regression analysis showing that um, Sloan Kettering was uh, the, the patients coming into Sloan Kettering were very sensitive to cost, and there were a lot of insurance companies that didn't cover Sloan Kettering, um, and the out-of-pocket costs were making were really influencing their decisions. And I showed a correlation with consumer confidence and the patterns of registrations uh, at Sloan Kettering. So, you know, this sort of galvanized a lot of effort to to try and convince the insurance companies that they should change their policy. Um, and one of the things that was done was with this large CMS data set um, that, you know, Peter and others later took over, but started with our financial uh, planning team, 
where they were able to show that not only were the outcomes better at Sloan Kettering and pretty much across the board, disease by disease, comparing to community hospitals and also to academic medical centers and other MCI cancer centers, um, but the costs were actually lower when you looked at it longitudinally. Right. So in other words, your, your first thought was, okay, well, maybe we're not being covered because, well, we provide great care, but we're crazy expensive. And then you guys do the analysis and you're like, wait a minute, yeah. we're actually all-in cost are not more. That doesn't explain it. So then you sort of go back and you're like, wait a minute, hey, payers, we don't, we don't cost more. We actually cost less. You should, you should um, cover us. And they're like, yeah, no. Right. Um, and then, then but, and, but then you write, it was a fascinating sentence where you're like, where even though their math was wrong about the, where the math, you know, was that we were cheaper, when you thought about it, you realized there was a very good reason why they still weren't covering you. Um, a little bit more about game theory. Can you go into that? Yeah. So it turns out that the, the, the insurance companies were facing something of a prisoner dilemma. Um, and that was my contribution to this discussion, um, which was framing the problem uh, in such a way that we could understand their decision making. So that is to say, any single insurance company might decide to cover some Kettering and the cost of um, the patients who would be treated for cancer at some Kettering was actually going to be lower and likely going to be lower in the in the long term. The problem is is that if you think about this as a plan, one of five plans for that an employer uh, has available for their employees, each of those plans um, is worried about something called adverse selection. That is to say, they don't want the most expensive people to choose their plan because they either have taken on some of the risk of the selection risk of who, who signs on, or they're going to look bad to the employer, even if it's a self-insured employer. Um, and so they don't want to have the most expensive patients, and cancer patients are more expensive. And so the problem was is that if, if one plan uh, covered Sloan Kettering, all the patients with a, or all the employees with a family history of cancer or with an existing diagnosis of cancer would choose that plan. And you had it on the the reverse also, right? If all the other plans did cover Sloan Kettering, they could do really well by not covering Sloan Kettering um, because then they wouldn't get, you know, all the cancer and anyone with a history of cancer would go to the other, to the other plants. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Yeah. We had to, we had to find a way to get them to, to move as one. And, and, and actually we've demonstrated to them that moving as one would benefit them as a whole because, Everyone would get better care, and the and the costs would be lower over over the long term. Um, but we needed that leader to get them to move in unison. Yeah, well, I, I, it's quite an interesting dilemma. You're right; I, it plays out time and again. So let me ask you a question. You know, as you think about that and listening to your stories, have you guys moved or started to think about incorporating the patient's definition of outcome in some of these analyses of what you should and shouldn't provide from a treatment standpoint, you know, I think there's, you know, seems to be an emerging body of work that shows that the way the patients with cancer identify good outcome, good experience is different maybe than what the physicians define it as. Yeah. You know, there there have been so many different measures of outcomes that we've worked through, um, you know, in a clinical trial setting and also in, you know, regular clinical setting. Um, And you're right. Some of these are from a clinical perspective, maybe perhaps better than uh, they, they might seem from a patient perspective. Patients don't value extending life by 
you know, just a couple of months if it's going to be under intense treatment that's not the best quality of life. Um, but, yeah, our, our doctors are incredibly sensitive right. to that. Um, and, and you'll hear stories of, of I, I remember one story from, from one of our well-known doctors, Larry Norton, where he was treating a patient um, who was resistant to his initial um, uh, recommendation for treatment, and he, he really and discovered that um, she was uh, she was really concerned about the, the possible side effect of peripheral neuropathy, and and it turns out she was a concert violinist. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he spent time with her thinking about what can I do to give the best possible treatment for this particular patient. Mm. It, it's something that that I hear countless stories of from our doctors. So this is the classic story of doctor. After this, will be out. I'll be able to play the violin. Yeah. Yeah, right, the exactly. old joke, haha. <laughs> um, interesting. So you you've also had a clinical trials matching project underway, something driven by uh, you know natural language processing and the like. What and the limitations and of the that. limitations thereof. You know what what are the lessons learned uh, through that process? Well, so that actually evolves from that that first um, project that we talked about where we wanted to see, you know, even once we had started to improve the natural language processing, um, how good were our retrospective data and could we actually use them to derive clinical insights? And so one of the tests that that we sort of challenged ourselves with was, could we take a large prospective study um, that had very convincing results and see if we could replicate the results of that prospective study using our own retrospective data, this time including a lot of the things that were embedded in the notes. Um, and we had looked at a, a, a in, in the same area, non-small cell lung cancer, at the Scagliotti study, uh, comparing pemetrexid and gemcitabine, and this is dated now because we have better treatments. Um, and it showed a clear advantage for pemetrexid for those uh, with a phenotype of adenocarcinoma. Um, and we actually were able to replicate the cohort in the study um, and got results that matched the trial almost to the p-value. And I, to that, that, that told us a lot about what the power of our, the underlying data were, if we could extract the right information. But then on the other hand, there was a limitation of the matching, right, when you were trying to then extend that to match patients to um, where you're trying to say, okay, which patients should go in certain clinical trials? You were trying to say, okay, can we extract the information from the clinical record? And initially, you try to try to do this in a language-based yep. way, you know, the way, the, way a normal, the way a person would, where you'd say, okay, what are the criteria? What can I find from the trial? Do they match? And then that actually didn't work so yeah. well. And then you had to avoid. Could you describe that? Sure. So, so our initial approach in trying to scale up what we could do was to do exactly what you were saying: to do natural language processing on the proto- protocol document on the eligibility criteria in particular, and uh, on the patient uh, on, on on the patient criteria, the patient phenotypic uh, features as well. Um, and right, it was incomplete, and it was also, you know, not never the perfect match. You'd be shocked by how many different ways on a protocol, um, different, you know, pharma sponsors could ask a question of how old the patient is. Um, and a lot of other companies have tried this. They've 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 built these startup companies uh, all around clinical trials matching that have failed in this regard. And it turns out that we had a volume of data at Sloan Kettering that allowed us to take a different approach 
um, which has since been patented, um, which was instead of looking at the eligibility criteria, we looked at the patients already enrolled on, on a trial and created a, a, a sort of matrix space of uh, you know, describing all of the collective phenotypic characteristics of the patients who were already enrolled in that trial. And then we were able to compare other patients to how well they, ma- they matched the patients that were already enrolled in the trial. And then we, after that, we said, well, can we do this for a new trial as well? And we were able to show that by creating a sample set of patients, you know, about a dozen patients and creating some artificial phenotypic characteristics, we're able to do that as well. It's just so interesting because it's not necessarily the way you'd think about it, you know, doing it, but it's almost a little bit of the way like Google Translate seems like it works, where like, you know, it wasn't like kind of like a rules-based or it wasn't being able to do it that way, but it's sort of trying to find examples that are like it and then finding other examples that you can extrapolate to. Yeah, I, I, I think to me, uh, what this story reflects most is the quality of engineers, machine learning, machine learning engineers, data scientists, that we have been blessed with and been able to attract and retain, um, not not with um, you know minimal difficulty. We we're always getting um, people poached, you know, yeah. having to compete with the likes of yeah, Facebook AI and then Google and soon Amazon, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But people who are really passionate and able to approach a problem in creative ways, um, taking advantage of the really unique clinical expertise and data resources that we have at an institution like San Pedro. It seems like it was a really, a very interesting experience, and it's terrific you were able to get the quality of, uh, of engineer that you're looking for. Um, now, we want to talk a little bit more about you, and, and for some of our guests, but the minority, I'd say, their career is fairly deliberate. They're doing something close to what they expected. For most, and you're certainly in this category, there's a fair amount of exploration that occurs. And um, uh, I guess we can try to pin your independence streak on your parents. I guess your dad was a bit of a rebel and a radical <laughs> back when he and your mom were grad students at UT Austin. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I guess there's a bit of genetic determinism in that regard. Um, <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. My, my parents were both teaching at, at UT Austin. My father teaching philosophy, and my, my mom was teaching biology. Uh, she had been one of the first uh, female genetic PhDs uh, from the University of Michigan. And um, my father could not, never leave well <laughs> enough alone, and uh, he's in some ways still that way, and and, and recovering uh, from a failed knee surgery now, and, and as stubborn as ever. Thank, thank God he's doing well. Um, so. Uh, yeah, he he had a history. He had uh, previously been teaching at uh, Western Kentucky, one of the historical black colleges, and was personally driving some of his students back and forth uh, uh, from the airport to get them to Selma. Had an Alabama state policeman put a gun to his head. Um, and uh, when he went to UT Austin, um, he needed to keep up the activity and ended up, uh, uh, the way he describes it, inadvertently starting a riot, but he started a riot. Um <laughs> And, and uh, he, there were all kinds of news articles all over Texas about Caroline the Red. Um, oh my gosh. That's what she was saying. Yeah. And 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 it, um, I think it, you know, I don't know the exact sequence of events, but uh, Lyndon Johnson called up John Silver, who was then president of the University of Texas, and said, "Make make sure this guy never teaches again." And that created some enough chaos in, in our family that you know le- led to. Uh, some of the inspirational events, my mom ended up going to medical school. We moved to Philadelphia, and that's where I was born. Uh, 
and uh, she's she's been a lot of the medical uh, inspiration for me throughout life, and you know the source of a lot of science discussions at the table. Well, it sounds like yeah, I know she's she's sort of a distinguished radiologist, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, you know, now growing up, you told me you said um, I had a good sense of what I enjoyed, but I didn't know how to translate that to a career track. What sort of things did you enjoy when you were a kid? Yeah, so I, I think a lot of things that you know people don't even consider translating into a career track. So. I, I was always big into uh, sports statistics and modeling sports uh, statistics and trying to create these predictive models of who would win. And I was actually pretty good at it, um, but but it's not something that you necessarily think of as a career. Um, and then, you know, you know, just thinking about the things that you're reading when nobody else is telling you what to read. And I find myself reading these science publications. Scientific American was a, a favorite of mine. Um, but somehow, you know, I think that the... The experience of my family overall and the extent that we, we maybe struggled for a while financially um, as a result of that chaos had me set on the idea that, you know, I was going to become this big, successful international businessman and never have to worry about finances. Well, but before that, I'm, I mean, it wasn't immediate. Oh, is that why you did languages to be international? Because you studied languages when you went to college at Michigan, right? You were like a you sang like a language yeah. savant, right? What, what, what do you speak? What languages well, do you speak? Well, so I, I I was I went to the residential college at the University of Michigan, which has an intensive language um, requirement, and I started with Russian, um, and I did really well with it. Um, I got the highest score on the the, the Russian placement test that um, I think ever, um, and. Uh, that led to some interest from uh, a government group, which I, I later learned was sponsored by the CIA, um, which uh, gave, gave, <laughs> gave me a scholarship to 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 then go to Mandarin. Uh, I spent another uh, so did a year and a half of Russian and a year and a half of Mandarin. Um, I also um, we wow. adopted two foster brothers. He's like the Manny Potemkin character For in um, uh, Homeland. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We had we had adopted two foster brothers um, from Iran. When I was a kid, um, and so for about a year and a half when I was growing up, we had you know both Persian and English in the house. And so the, the way my brothers say it is, I still speak Persian like a four-year-old. Um, <laughs> wow, those are some tough languages. <laughs> it's not like I'm... Spanish and Italian. <laughs> oh, exactly, exactly. And then, so what's the oligarch story? Oh, so yeah, you know, as I was finishing my undergrad program. Um, you know, so I think I'm I'm going to continue with this route in international business. I had studied also economics as an undergrad, um, and one of the professors had connected me with an old childhood friend of his who had become this wildly successful businessman. Um, you know, after the fall of communism, and um, I had agreed to to, to meet him, and um, he had made a you know. A, fairly substantial job offer to me after speaking to me. In Russian, presumably. Yes. Yes. Um, and about two weeks before I was actually supposed to fly out to Moscow to to start, um, there was an attack using rocket-propelled grenades on his um, on his uh, vehicle and his escort. Oh, I hate that when that happens. <laughs> yeah, right. Two bodyguards were killed. Um, and I just started thinking, hmm, maybe this is not, you know, exactly what I had in mind. Then you thought about Plan B. My understanding is, like, it took a little while to evolve Plan B. You went on a bit of a personal journey. You spent some time in Israel where you find yourself increasingly observant. You returned to Michigan briefly. Then you 
you did an uh, MBA program at Yale, uh, which um, where you were going to switch to a quantitative finance PhD program, but then you and your wife were expecting your first child and you knew you needed a salary. So then you collected ultimately an MBA from Yale, and then that's how you found your way to um, Sloan Kettering, which brings us back to the present and the opportunity to ask you a question I know you've been thinking about recently. Sean Parker made news by saying tech people are coming from tech to biology who are doing that so dramatically underestimate the complexity of the human body. It's not designed by us. It doesn't work the ways that make sense. You heard these words, uh, um, Ari, and you felt that they represented actually an opportunity uh, for folks at, uh, at like, like your team at Sloan Kettering. Can you tell me what you meant by that? Well, so I, I think that the default assumption for those of us at academic medical centers is we could never possibly do what they can do at the likes of Google and Amazon. And to some extent, you know, in terms of scale, that's probably true. But there's some unique perspective that you get when you're embedded with the people who are living the clinical journey day to day, when you can actually build a model and embed it into a practice. And that's a big part of what our development team has been working on now is this new Darwin platform where models like the clinical trials matching tool, where predictive models for pain and, and, uh, and uh, development of metastatic disease are being incorporated into the clinical setting. And so I, I was wondering, you know, if it's not going to be Google and Amazon, who is it going to be? I, I think there have been good arguments made for why you similarly wouldn't expect that level of innovation and disruption from, you know, a bureaucratic academic medical center. And, you know, my friends at Flatiron still tease me about that because I, I've given up a a job offer there thinking that, you know, there were some unique things that we had to offer at, at, at a center like ours. And I still believe it. Um, but there's certainly not the same sense of agility that you get at a really good startup. Uh, but my question was, if it's not going to be Google and Amazon, who is it going to be? Um, and, and might there be actually a role for a team like ours? Interesting. Well, do you think that it really takes the combination of people from tech and healthcare to create innovation, or can one or the other do it alone? Oh, it definitely does. I, I think that's, that's in, if anything, the unique value that, that we have. We have this unique mix of really top-rate machine learning engineers working very closely with the clinicians in a clinical setting, um, and you definitely need that combination. Um, I think, if, if anything, the, the reason, one of the reasons that, that Flatiron was so successful when so many other health tech startups have been failing was because of the respect that they had for the clinical complexity. Totally agree with that. Totally agree with that. And, and um, I would have liked to see more of that in a recent, um, there was a recent uh, profile of the Flatiron team. And um, I thought that that aspect of it wasn't as brought out as, as, as voluminously as it should have been. Now, where I thought you were going to go earlier when you, when you were talking about um, the opportunity, it looked like you were starting to head to the if not us, who, if not now, when, <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, which, which is a cheesy segue to an important topic because um, I wanted to spend the last few minutes we have here talking about a topic that I know is meaningful to you. You've described yourself as a conspicuously observant, as someone who looks conspicuously observant, looking perhaps like Grammy Hall's version of the conspicuously observant. 
Um, and we can include a, a, a relevant link from Annie Hall. Um, <laughs> what has what has been this what has this experience been like for you, both in your daily interactions and beyond that? How your beliefs inform your work and your sense of mission? Yeah, and and I think that the quote from Hillel that you offered before, which was, I, I did have it in the back of my mind. If it, you know, <laughs> uh, if I am not for me, then who is for me? If not, now when? Um, if I'm only for me, then 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 what am I? Right. Um, Maybe start with the daily interactions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for the, for those for those who don't know what conspicuously observant looks like, you know, I've got the yamata. I actually have an, a, a full beard. Um, I wear the traditional tzitzit. And uh, so I can often be mistaken for the chaplain at a hospital like ours. Um, <laughs> Although having and, a full beard out here is just a hipster. You know, it's, yeah, it's the other right. that would give you away. Yeah, wait for the coffee, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah in, in, in New York, it still gets to be pegged as the rabbi. I was, I, I was mistaken <laughs> for a rabbi as recently as this morning. And, and I, I know a little bit. I've learned a little bit. You know, I know a few prayers. And, but usually I'll, I'll have a line ready, something like, I'm sorry, I only play a rabbi on TV. Um, and that usually gets me out of things, but circumcisions on demand. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I I don't always have that line ready. There was one time where um, somebody said, "Rabbi, could you please say a, rab- a prayer with our mother?" And and I just said, "Sure, I know a few prayers." Um, and we went up, we went up to the floor where where she was, and um, and I I said a prayer with her, and they were very grateful. I spent time talking with them, and uh, in walks. The, the doctor who was on call then turns out to be our, you know, our, our, our uh, solid tumor chief. And he, it was his patient. And he looks at her and he looks at me and he says, Ari, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but then beyond that, you're, you're, you, I think it's even at a deeper, I mean, you know, other than sort of the ersatz rabbi stuff, the, um, um, the how it informs your sense of mission, I think really is important just for you to mention a little bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's been a big part of what's gotten me to stay at a mission-driven institution like ours um, and say, how how can we change the world? Um, and, and it's not like there are not ways to change the world. And I think Atul Butte, you know, put it really well when he, when he spoke with you, um, that there are lots of ways to change the world and entrepreneurially as an uh, entrepreneurial entrepreneurism. What, what's the word? It's easy for you to say. Entrepreneurialism. Yeah, say, it, say it in Russian. <laughs> yeah, right. Entrepreneurialism is certainly one one way to go about it. But but I think you know I've been really taken by our mission. And 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 more than that, I think you know my, my Jewish studies really informed the way that I think. Um, so you know you you had mentioned the idea of tikkun olam of fixing the world that, that, you know, imbues everything, a lot of Jewish discussion. And when you study um, Hasidut, like the uh, inner uh, Kabbalistic meaning of the Torah, you learn that it's not just tikkun olam. The tikkun olam is the sort of the, the connections that we make between things and how we thread things together and the connections we make between people and bringing people together. But there also has to be an element of um, what's known as tohu, of the chaos, that you can never build things together in such a way that they're they're rigid and they're fixed and, and they're not flexible. And there has to be some element of that chaos that you mix in as well. Um, and it has an amazing number of parallels in terms of what we do and the approaches that we've taken and the way I've tried to um, inspire new ideas at Sun Kettering. And balance chaos and structure? 
Uh, that's exactly it, right? So I, I think, if anything, my uh, natural inclinations, as you referenced, you know, genetic uh, with the genetic imprinting, have been a little bit more to the chaos side. <laughs> um, and and the trick is has, has been hiring amazing people who are now the directors of the teams that I started, um, who are far more systematic and and thoughtful about these processes and developing a, a degree of respect for each other and each other's approaches so that we can balance the two approaches. That's so interesting. We're so grateful that you uh, you uh, were able to join us and, and had such a far-ranging discussion. Uh, I want to wish you um, happy Hanukkah. Thank you. Thank you. Happy Hanukkah. Absolutely. And um, uh, best of luck with all that you're doing um, and that your team is continuing to build at Sloan Kettering. Absolutely. Take care, Ari. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Yep. So that was a great show. I really enjoyed talking to Ari. He's so interesting to me. Uh, just the combination of, uh, you know, just broad intellect and just so much humanity as well. It's a beautiful summary. And it, re- it really is. And, and you know, he he's sort of, a, I mean, it's almost sort of like the, you know, ultimate inter- in, at so many different intersections of technology and health, of sort of, you know, sort of secular and religious, of so many different things. And he sort of manages it with such grace. Um, and I'm um, just so excited about what he's working on and what he is, uh, he's building. I love the, uh, the uh, rabbi story in the hospital. That was hilarious. Uh, just imagine, it's not like I a, it sounds like it was right out of Seinfeld, right? It really? It really so does. please remember to uh, rate us on iTunes and um, leave a comment, help others discover the show. You can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tech Tonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Shalom Aleichem. Aleichem Shalom.